Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Thanks for checking out this podcast. Notice That is a project of Think Beyond a listener-funded media house focused on connecting humans through therapy and art. To keep this podcast going, we'd love for you to support us on Patreon by searching patreon.com slash thinkbeyondhealing in your favorite web browser. And don't forget to check out our new merch by going to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and clicking on the merchandise tab. Hello, and welcome back to Notice That, the MDR podcast. We're back. We're back. Finally. The three of us. Uh Where have we been? Where have we been? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure a lot of you are wondering that. Where have you been? Two months and no episode? What is this? How rude. We've left him hanging. Has anyone reached out? I haven't gotten any like There's been plenty of conversations. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Melissa's in the know on people wanting more. Like, is everybody okay? (laughs) I've had, you know, loving comments. Just curiosity. Just curiosity. Well, maybe we should give our listeners a little bit of context as to why one reason why, and there's one reason why we're going to be real about it, but one really big, special, adorable, cute, snuggly reason (laughs) why we've been gone. There's another human in the world now. There is a little, that's very cool. A little, well, a little Olivia, I don't know, a little Bridger Olivia. Yeah. She's a girl. So. Yes. I don't know. Bridger, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but yes, there is a uh, now nine pound, two ounce um, small <laughs> human with no teeth living in my house um, named Goldie Rose Falkenstein. And oh. so that's very cool. Um, but it has been a journey. We got COVID in the hospital, yeah. um, which yeah. was not what we expected. We had a, we had an open plan as far as how we were going to give birth, but that wasn't on it. Um, and, <laughs> and all of the creative renditions of how will birth go, you forgot to put code on it. Didn't even think about that. Uh, yeah. So perhaps we should have, I can hear many voices in my head saying you should have thought of that. That's why you don't go to hospitals. Okay. Well, I'm not trying to get into this whole thing right now. <laughs> we had a lovely Master experience. We're good. Yes. We had a lovely experience aside from getting COVID, but um, about a week after, um, we brought her home, everybody kind of got back to normal, whatever mm-hmm. that means now. Um, yeah, a yeah. new normal, a new normal. I was talking with Caleb and the best metaphor or analogy I can use is that I feel like I'm a resident now of two parallel universes that I'm perpetually <laughs> late to transport between. Um, like I'm just, I I like show up to the one I'm supposed to be in quote unquote, 
and it's like I'm late and I have to like orient to where I am. And then at some point I'm like sucked back into the other one of work and yeah, feels very disorienting. And when you time travel, sleep is a bad thing, I guess. So um, really can't getting much of that. Can't afford it. No. Do that visualization explains some of the facial expressions that you've jumped onto Zoom with. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. And you just look like really disoriented. <laughs> yeah, because I'm like, where am I? What time is it? <laughs> what meeting am I in? <laughs> what version of myself was I just before this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very disorienting. Um, and I thankfully have so much like so many people have been really understanding from clients and consultees um it's interesting to work with so many people internationally because they're like so you're like off for like a while right oh like no um there is no governmental support for this (laughs) yes so wild so it's been interesting but she is lovely and beautiful and wonderful um she makes amazing faces (laughs) her eyebrows are unbelievable (laughs) well if you ended up making a photo of her the cover image for this episode i wouldn't be opposed to that i think there's a few listeners out there that would be thrilled to see her face (laughs) there is one that isn't particularly like cute because her face is like so scrunched but she's given the peace sign that's my favorite photo of her Uh um and it was caught perfectly where it looks like very intentional like peace Uh sign yeah. yeah, like I have one like that up? of Nora at about a yeah. month old. She was doing the thinker face, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> she had this serious, like you know, hand on chin. Like there, there's something very, very serious happening in there. Yeah, there's <laughs> another picture of Goldie where she's laying down and she's like posing, like she's like <laughs> full on, like arms crossed, one hand up, like just so the serene pose. baby pose. Serene baby, <laughs> yeah, that's what it would be called if it were curated. Serene baby. Well, it's an excellent reason that we have been delinquent in uh, episode. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to say, like, I have definitely missed you guys in this space. Well, I miss you guys just in general, but like in this space as well. Um, this is my first episode, like recorded being back. Um, and it's just a different space that no other social space offers where we just get to kind of dive in and have fun and know that we're speaking about something really important um, and that hopefully a lot of people will benefit from um, and we'll get a lot out of it too, just in this time together. So I'm really excited to be back. Mm-hmm. Glad to have you back and for us to be back too. Melissa and I were, didn't tend to our recording as well as we could have maybe with. We've been we- using our time very well though. I promise. Yes, we have. Busy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so we're well. back. We into are. Francine's um, EMDR seminal textbook. Um, mm-hmm. And we're picking up where we left off, which we finished chapter three in our last recording. So you'll see a two month gap there, but we're right back to where we were starting chapter four uh, entitled phase one client history. That's what we're going to talk about today in mm-hmm. part, at least I don't think we're going to get through the chapter, but. We're going we're gonna to get through at least half of it. That's our goal. That's our commitment. We're going to yeah. try. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when I think similar to our other episodes, we're looking to follow that same process of acknowledging P 
pieces of the text. There's going to be much more than what we get to speak to you. Um, but then also offering some of our own interpretation or modifications or insight that we have found through experience with EMDR to kind of fold into some of the material that's in the text. Along with some pretty important kind of updates to the way it was written back then and all the intervening, you know, wisdom and research of the field as a whole, what we know now that we didn't know um, in terms of safety and and updates to traumatology that are very relevant for these phases. Mm -hmm. So where do you guys want to begin? How do we get started with EMDR? Yeah, I think that is a great place to begin. and speaking to my time traveling self, this is helpful for me as well. Just getting back into this conversation of, um, I feel like when we leave basic training, there's so much in our head, like, you know, this whole book in whatever PowerPoint form it was presented from the presenters. And now we've got all this clinical hours going on and the clients that we're seeing, where do you begin? I think within EMDR's basic training, like what you leave with is that, well, we just start doing it. We start with clients that we're already seeing, or, you know, we take on new clients and start doing EMDR. And I think a lot of that is really muddy. So I'm glad that we have this space to kind of parse out and go segmented or, or just kind of patiently through what it means to start EMDR with somebody. But in phase one, when it says client history, I think there's a large spectrum of what that could look like um, from just inheriting a bunch of documentation that has long histories on it, previous clinical notes, additional diagnoses, medications, whatever. And then you've got your personal relational connection being built with your client. So it's like a wedding of the two. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember right now if we've spoken to this on this podcast we've talked about it in so many other places but i think maybe it's been on here too just our conceptualization of our phase one and two as linear as the other phases or can we really acknowledge like the the real life experience of those experience of those two phases is not necessarily like as linear as what it's written as. And so practically speaking, phase one and two kind of flow, ebb and flow together. And like relationship is being built through history taking and relationship is being built through experiencing resources together and preparing them for what does EMDR even look like and what does that mean? Um, and so depending on the, the complexity of the case, we can't say we're going to collect a full history before we start preparation, or maybe we start with preparing before we even ask any history. Yeah. Like there's so many nuances to those two phases. I think one thing that I think is pretty confusing is the fact that we call them all phases gives this feeling that they're somehow all sort of the same kind of thing when they're remarkably different. Um, you know, the, the process of, doing a phase three assessment, which is a very discrete worksheet with a set of questions, and this is what we're doing, is vastly different to the complex nature of something like a history-taking phase, which could roll out over years, where an assessment worksheet, if done well, is a two-minute experience, right? So even, even calling them the same thing creates a sensation for our clinicians that Somehow they should be kind of similar to each other experientially, and they're not. 
it's sort of like, you know, if you were to say that a marriage is the same thing as the moment of wedding vows. Well, I mean, I guess sort of, but like <laughs> you can't you can barely, you know, uh, talk about the two as if you're having the same experience. And yet they're very linked to each other. Right. They're, mm-hmm. they're in the same category of marital experience. Right. Things that we do as married people. But um, it it's not really useful, uh, I think, to label them as if they're the same kind of thing. Um, and so when we try to talk about these and, you know, we've been working on like creating images and visuals to try to represent this in some way, because it is complex. I think that imagining the first two phases as these very kind of broad and wide open experiential um, encounters that we have over long lengths of time and the later phases are much more discreet and black and white in some ways. And so just to kind of mentally separate those two and say these are very different experiences that we're going to have yeah the way i think about it is that phase one and two aren't necessarily specific to a target whereas the later you go you know phase three and on with some you know reevaluation bringing us back to the larger picture but those phases three through seven you're working very very discreetly in a memory likely or a series of memories, a channel of processing, like you're doing some very specific and intentional work and then zooming back out into this larger unfolding process that's kind of just continually going. I love, Melissa, you just noting that one of the assumptions, even in the language of a phasic treatment approach is an assumed consistency across each of these phases, even in our relationship to time. Like- If assessment phase is going to be the same as our preparation or our history taking phase, you're going to be in a world of hurt. <laughs> like you're you're going to miss so many things and have to objectify. Yeah. You know, as you were saying that, both of you talking about the broad categories of phase one and two, it's interesting because they each hold some pretty specific, even target specific pieces. Events. But they're more than that. So they are very broad, fluid, relational. But then there's like to identify like a, say, float back technique, for instance, is a specific history taking tool that gets us to the target we're going to be working on um, and is more of a step by step process or specific um, like target resourcing. We know what schema we're working on. We know a target realm we're going to be in. Let's do specific resourcing for that before moving in. So I think they each can hold those specific components, but it's also so much more broad than that. Um, And it is something that unfolds over a long span of time. I, I think that like one sort of image that we could use to imagine it together is that phase one and phase two are a foundation that everything else sits on and they're always there and we're always tending to them. You know, they're, they're constantly getting added to, uh, we don't do anything without that foundation underneath us. Um, and I think that that sort of creates a more situated feeling of what we're actually trying to achieve in those first two phases of this is the foundation we're going to be on for the rest of this experience. And so we're going to have to tend to it with that kind of thoughtfulness and carefulness and spend as much time there as we need to in order to really get that foundation well laid. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes we talk about switching phase one and phase two, Mm -hmm. which I think is probably more true than not. 
But also I think it's maybe even better to say we do them both together and forever. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. That is, yeah, I think that's, even when we used to use the language of switching, I think that's what we always meant is that we see these things as occurring so importantly in tandem that right. to delineate numerically points us in a direction that we don't need to go. Right. Um, that client history coming before preparation, it, it feels very funnily to me. Uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to acknowledging or embracing the complexity that is in the relationship and underemphasizing one of the causal mechanisms of change in EMDR, which is the relationship between the therapist and the client. Like that to me is where when we say one and two, we're meaning we're establishing the context that this whole thing is going to unfold. Just like you said, Melissa, the foundation on which we stand and the relationship being such a such a primary part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I feel like maybe I have a, a relatively good bridge into maybe our next point. Do we feel ready? I'm in. Okay. <laughs> so I know that we have said this before. And so I'm hearkening back to moments where we have um, posthumously had a conversation with Francine about what maybe she would have said now that she didn't get to say back then. And so we're going to do that again. <laughs> we're going to um, do that again. And, <laughs> <laughs> because I, I like several times since I'm reading these chapters, I have this feeling of like, oh, she said it. Like she said that really important caveat to the big conversation. And usually it's something around the concept of you're going to have to make modifications to this basic protocol in the case of things like complex presentations and uh, serious abuse and, you know, association yeah. and that, but it's always done in this way that at least to me, it, it has this feeling of, but it's more common that you're not going to have to modify, mm -hmm. right? Because that's what the whole book is about <laughs> is the, yes. the not modifying. And then there are some chapters in the back and there's a lot of allusions forward to, you know, you're, you're going to have to modify sometimes and here's what to do if that happens. And so I think the update that we would want to make, and I think based on, you know, what we know now and where research is in the field, is that actually modification is more common than not. Mm -hmm. And so these little caveats that she tends to make, like, you know, there's one towards the bottom of page 87, um, where she says clients with severe abuse backgrounds should be given careful consideration before proceeding with treatment. Please say more, Francine. <laughs> because. Yeah. Like th this is the world that therapists live in is severe abuse situations. Like we need a lot more uh, than before you proceed with treatment, give it careful consideration. Like how do we carefully consider what are we considering? And when we do consider, what should we do instead? Like there's so many um, questions, right? And, and so uh, I think that one of the general updates that we would make is that we want everyone to really feel that if you're having to modify regularly, exactly. You know, this is where we're all at is realizing that a pure basic protocol um, is going to be less common than having to make some modifications. The other thing that I think is true is that even for clients that could benefit from just a very straightforward basic experience, there are some modifications that are potentially beneficial for everybody. And they're, they're really supportive to both client and therapist. So maybe we should just go ahead and do them. Yeah. Yeah, I would say in my experience, that feels so true. And having 
a template from a basic training that doesn't necessarily speak to that explicitly leaves you feeling like, am I doing something wrong? Or feeling like, gosh, I must, I must just work with the hardest population ever that's barely ever going to be able to be like able to use EMDR. And so yeah. I love just like starting from that point of the reason it's going to be modified regularly is because we're all individual nuanced humans. Like it's, we're taking something standard and trying to say, how do we make this fit the person that we're trying to cheat to treat? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of writing, uh, a lot of research on this idea of humanizing theory and intervention. And mm-hmm. that to me is, is what we're speaking to or how I understand it. Because if you look at the textbook, it comes across very categorical, objective, um, even listing out different domains that you should assess to determine client readiness. That mm-hmm. language is very quantitative, like very uh, evidence-based, quote unquote. And what I mean by that isn't necessarily that it isn't at all related to if you don't do these things, you're not doing EMDR. But it's saying in the way EMDR was developed to satisfy evidence-based assessment standards, it had to be explained in these very specific categories. Like when you say client readiness, what do you mean? And when you list out stability, life supports, general physical health, (laughs) office consultation, like all this stuff, it comes across, I think, in a basic training to somebody who doesn't know that, oh, you're going to humanize all of this in your work. It comes across as these are the standards. And if you don't do these things, you're not doing EMDR. And so I think that's a really intentional process of bringing your humanity and the humanity of your client into this thing and making it come alive. You know, what was really objective and um, like reductionary. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like I am understanding why the basic training is taught the way it is more now than ever, (laughs) like as we're working to write ourselves on this, the impossibility of fitting all that we've learned and experienced through now more than a decade of doing this into five days, which is like a really long training, <laughs> but into five days, it's, there's no impossibly reason. short and it's impossible to understand all of the components until you have yet used the most basic components. Like you can't quite get it like a, a student in grad school. There's no way they're going to fully be able to understand something as advanced as complex dissociation when they're first learning, you know, basic helping skills. Mm -hmm. And so I think when we look at it like that, Melissa, you and I were just talking about this this morning of like the biggest thing I hope listeners take from this as they're hearing it is not that you have to know all of those ways of nuancing it, all of the ways of adapting it and making it this creative process, but just know that you can and that over time and trusting your instinct along with trusting the protocol, seeing those two come together and all of the clinical skills that you have and the human instinct that you have, that will become something that is really beautiful. But we have to know we're allowed to do that because so many people fear doing any kind of changing as though they don't have permission to make those modifications. I know that I've been using this quote and 
uh, kind of constantly. Maybe it's like our quote for the year, <laughs> uh, the Picasso quote of learn the rules like a master so you can break them like an artist. And I was talking to, I think it was a certification group recently, um, which certification is really where the uh, break the rules like an artist part comes in. <laughs> yeah. Um, but really, really considering that when I say that, I think people hear me emphasizing the break the rules like an artist, because frankly, that's the sexier part of the quote. <laughs> but I actually live my life in deep dedication to the first part of the quote yeah. <laughs> that, you know, I am, uh, we all are, are, are devoted to the rules, not because we think that rules are made to follow, but because there's some wisdom in the rules that uh, give us a firm foundation, right? They are the skeleton of what we're doing. And as long as we understand them that way, um, they give us tremendous support and clarity and solidity and all things that we need as therapists. So well before we're in the, you know, flamboyant lifestyle of breaking them like an artist, um, there is this need to study and and commit to uh, knowing the why of the rules so that you also know when the rule isn't helping, why it makes sense. Because yeah. those are the moments where then we need to learn a new rule and break that first rule artistically and creatively with her clients so that it can actually work for them and they can benefit. Um, and so in in the initial learning of EMDR, it really is a time for the rules. But part of the rules includes knowing when the rule doesn't apply. And I think that's where the original conversation just didn't know how to nuance enough. I think it's it's that asterisk that is missing a lot of times in the way EMDR is described, even in this book, like those caveats that we've talked about thus far come at the end of paragraphs, right? Not at the beginning and end of chapters to me, like that's the, again, my standards don't mean anything to Francine. Like, <laughs> you know, she, she is who she is, but for me, just naming that before we get into any of the objective left brain material of learning this stuff, I want you to just connect with it relationally and understand that right. this is going to take on a life of its own and needs to be individualized to the clients that you see and the different feelings and authenticity that you yourself as the therapist have. Mm -hmm. Once we get to connect on that, now let's transition into this, you know, left brain. Here's the specific rules, quote unquote, of EMDR. How do those feel to you? What does that look like for your client? What's coming up then as you start to, as you start to apply this modality? Yeah. So speaking of the more left brain rules, you guys want to hop over to the uh, actual readiness checklist and have a peek at that? Let's do it. Okay. So we have lovingly, we rename a lot of things and, and we've done it to this too. <laughs> so what, what we call the traditional readiness checklist, we call it assessment for reprocessing readiness, because I think one of the first uh, kind of internal adjustments we can make is that when we're talking about readiness, we're not talking about readiness for preparation and resourcing. Everybody is ready for that phase, right? That's what we do in the most severe and acute cases. Um, so when we're talking about risk and readiness, we're really looking at risk and readiness around, are they ready to do the work of phase three and phase four, where we're selecting a specific target, we're intentionally activating it for the express intention of trying to reprocess and clear the distress there. Are they ready for that? Can they tolerate 
that particular part of the EMDR process. Um, and that's a, a bit of a shift from the way that it's usually taught because the the danger of imagining that we're assessing readiness just for EMDR as a whole is that there's a lot of people that miss out on the the help of the other phases just because we um, are assessing them out as not ready for phase four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that feels so, so important to me in the actual application. If we're talking about EMDR being more than just a tool or an intervention, like if yeah. you're going to use it in that way, then then yes, that might be we're assessing that kind of readiness. But if we're talking about really understanding what EMDR is attempting to do from a, you know, nervous system informed perspective and be able to say like, gosh, even the roots of memory consolidation and all that we'll get into in that to come. This is not about clients. Are you a fit for healing or not? It's do they have what they need? Do they have access to the components that are really necessary for this targeted processing, which is what comes in in that phase three and on? So we, you know, have a general list of things that we like to consider. So I'm going to, you know, just going to say these and then we can talk about whatever stands out to us. Um, Some of them are obvious and some need a little more nuancing. Uh, But things that probably need to be considered are things like, you know, what diagnoses are they coming in with, whether we agree with them or not. (laughs) The fact that they're coming in with them means something. Um, Did you, Melissa, did you already read the second half of that um qualifier for the assessment um no i was going to read these and then say that but we can do that first go ahead okay yeah for me it's just an important thing because even the assumptions that we've spoken to in the traditional sense of assessing readiness you're looking for disqualification Mm -hmm. and that's not what we're talking about we're talking about considerations based on assessment there is no disqualifying in the way we're conceptualizing what's to come, like what you're about to read. Yeah. Yeah. So with that in mind, that these are things that we consider, but none of them are disqualifiers. We consider, you know, past mental health diagnoses. Um, we consider what are the medications that they're currently on, any physical and medical situations that they're experiencing. Another big one that we consider is just the general life stability. Like how intense and stressful is their current life, whether it's connected to past trauma or not, what's up in their day to day is a big consideration of how they're going to do in a phase three and phase four process. Um, Another thing that we really spend a lot of time highlighting is the, the level of safety and rapport in the clinical relationship. How much can our relationship uh, hold and contain is really going to influence the kind of material that we can tackle together and have that go well and be successful. Um, internal and external resources for the clients. Um, Some of these they're going to come in with already. Others we're considering what might we be able to develop um, and how quickly might those actually be developed for them. Um, Definitely considering kind of the normal uh, risk factors like suicidal ideation plans, attempts, and things like that. And then the last one uh, is the degree of known dissociation, which I use that language very deliberately (laughs) because Uh, We will initially assess for dissociation, whether we're doing it relationally, whether we're using the DES or something else, Um, but never assume that after you go through that process, you have a perfectly clear and accurate picture of what dissociation may be present for the client. 
oftentimes as we move into those other phases, we find new manifestations or, or other um, expressions of dissociation that maybe we didn't catch initially. Um, but the degree of known dissociation, does a client know that they do that? What are we observing? What are, you know, what are their uh, family members and other practitioners observed? All of that is going to be considered. And it's kind of in the big constellation and collection of all those factors that we get this sense of how ready we are. But it's not a box that we check. It's not like the light turns from yeah. red to green. <laughs> totally. It's it's more like how much gas do we put on the accelerator, right? Like how how quickly are we going to move into those deeper phases or what might we need to do ahead of time to get ready for that? Um, so it's not a hard switch. It's it's really a a feeling for how fast can we go and how deep can we go at this point. For me, in a a way of humanizing this for myself, I use these different indicators as a means of understanding how able is this client to connect with their internal experience and work meaningfully in a memory or in a, a specific moment or experience from the past as it is currently relevant. Um, again, that's not something that you can objectively assess for. Um, but I'm looking for, are, are you in a situation in life where you're ready to work on some of the things that you're coming to work on? Because there might need to be some things that, and this is part of the consideration element, but there might need to be some things that we name as needed resources to create now, even if that's a, a care team, like who are you going to go out into the world and be with in this way? that is open to and encouraging of your healing process and how do we protect the work and the vulnerability that we're going to unfold in our time together. And within that process, can you work internally with your emotions and actually do what we hope EMDR does in letting a memory wake up and feel in the body and actually be able to open that reconsolidation window and hopefully achieve reprocessing. Um, Cause those are assumptions in the EMDR process that I don't think we talk about enough um, or give space for nuance with. I would like to read a little list that is in the text um, and talk about how we maybe look at it slightly differently and and Melissa and you got and I got to have a conversation on this already but somewhere in there I don't remember exactly where it's at but she was identifying these like kind of core criteria not as um not as organized as what that Melissa just read from but she had acknowledged for clients to be able to move forward with reprocessing there must be um, a tolerance for experiencing high levels of vulnerability, lack of control, um, and high levels of physical sensation or any type of physical sensation that's associated with the targeted memory, and then the ability to completely tell the truth about their experience with the therapist. And when we looked at that list, it was like, okay, that that would disqualify like 97% of all human beings, right? Like that list feels intolerable to my body as I say it. Um, and especially to do that 
starting out, we're talking about the earliest phase. Maybe you first meet a client and say, I have to be willing to feel high levels of vulnerability with you, lack of control, complete honesty about what I'm experiencing, and be open to any physical sensation from my trauma. No, thank you. Like that makes sense. Jen, you don't give that as like an assessment to people and say, unless you answer. Are you willing to do this on the dotted line? To all those things, you don't see them? Who would want to do EMDR? Who would want to be in relationship with someone else, period? (laughs) Yes. Necessary. Well, and I I I think it's. I think I I get what she's looking for in each uh, one of these. For sure. I really do. But what I want to like just like soften about all of it is it's not, as you guys already mentioned, disqualifying. And then also, what if we take each one of these and say, instead of it either has to exist or not exist, what are the strategies the clients are using when that doesn't exist yet? So if they can't tolerate high levels of vulnerability, right. what's showing up in that? Is it humor? Is it laughter? Is it um, some avoidance? Is it, you know, like what's the strategy that shows up when it feels like maybe they're not quite ready for the high levels of vulnerability? And how do we work with it instead? And it might be we work with it before we proceed, or it might be we work with it alongside the process. Um, and and we kind of partner. Let's I'm going to use the example of like sarcasm or humor in vulnerable moments. Like that doesn't mean we can't move forward with it, but it says like that might be a strategy or talking, verbal processing. I see that all the time between sets. Mm-hmm. They can't tolerate the intensity, so they start talking about it. Um, maybe we work with it. Maybe we allow that alongside the processing while we stay aware of it. So I think that's kind of an area that we've softened a lot to say like, Hey, those are important factors to really be able to holistically process something, but they're not disqualifiers. And there's so many modifications that we can make to really honor each one of those. Yeah. I, Jen, I think that's such a good example of how history taking and really thorough and relational history taking then gives us a lot of hints and clues about how to do modification. Mm-hmm. So just as like a brief example of a version of this that I feel like I encounter kind of constantly um, with a, the types of clients that I tend to work with is there's often the modification of I let go of trying to quote unquote clear a target as in get a perfect zero There's some situations where I really push for zeros, and I've talked about that. But one of the modifications that sometimes we'll make is, okay, I can't expect a zero here because based on our dynamic, our relationship, and also their history and what, you know, we've discovered together, they can tolerate a lot of different emotions, but they have yet to have an experience where they can actually tolerate big anger, big expressions of rage, you know, saying things like, I hate him, right? Like, we're not there yet. But we could do a lot, right? We could work with the fear, we could work with anxiety, we could work with shame, we could work with so much. But I'm not going to expect it to get totally clear, because I know that there's a pretty big affect phobia around rage, and we're just not there. So I, I can think of three clients off the top of my head, 
where we're currently in a phase of revisiting targets that we've already done in the past because they're ready to rage about it. We have we have done that work, that careful um, process of like accessing their rage and getting them ready to tap into that um, and speak it and feel it with me in the room, right? And I, you know, I have somebody we're getting ready to go to a town nearby to be in 60 acres of woods because she's told me I can't do rage here in your office, right? So we're we're gonna modify protocol and go into the woods because that's where we're at. So we're gonna revisit a target that she knows she needs to do that with. Um, and that's a modification we made based on this really like careful and thorough history taking that says, okay, we're pretty good, but I can't touch anger. I just am not there yet. So let's do what we can and come back when that has shifted somehow. And we've been resourcing and doing ego state and doing all kinds of prep to get ready for rage the whole time, but we're still doing phase four processing on shame, anxiety, et cetera. Just an example. So I'm I'm sure that people are curious in general about modifications. <laughs> Because that's that's the part that like we keep hinting at of like we're gonna have to modify, be ready to modify, um, and so I don't think that we're gonna go into a ton of detail about all the different modifications. But I think in all of the subsequent chapters, we're gonna weave that in and throughout this conversation about like how might we modify, how might we uh, get artistic about some of this based on uh, our relationship, the history taking that we've done, and how preparation has gone. Yeah, right? this is. Rep- this is a moment where we need to swing back into the right brain and connect a little bit where we just said that this is going to need to be modified. There are considerations to be made. That doesn't mean flip to page 94 for the exhaustive list of modifications and considerations. Like we just need to take a second. That's why I said like swing over to the right brain that, that doesn't mean, oh, go over to this other spreadsheet. It means tune in to yourself and to the client and really think and feel from the bottom up about what is going on in my in the sense I'm making or the meaning that we're making together of this assessment process, because that's going to hold the key for whatever modification and consideration you need to make with your client. I'm not going to be able to tell you that as a consultant, because it's your client and you're you. I don't know them. <laughs> you know them. Um, that's one of the hallmarks for me that I consistently hear in consultation is that I ask more questions than the consultee does. And that's because I have no idea what you're experiencing. I can go off of templates that I've experienced and try and make projective identifications of, you know, here's where it might be coming from. And sometimes we're correct. We have a whole case conceptualization model that helps with that. But the whole purpose to me is tuning or -hmm. cultivating a posture of sensitivity toward ourselves and our clients. Um, That's where we're going to find the modifications. Yeah. I think it's also therapist dependent. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, considering what other things are you well-versed in? What other kinds of, you know, therapeutic skills do you have and ways of working do you enjoy that feel good in your body? And that element gets to count, right? So traditionally in basic training, we're given a list of possible interweaves, uh, but there isn't really an extended conversation about 
you know, these are really just possibilities and really a drop in the bucket of possibilities. Um, and so, I mean, that's what you're highlighting, Bridger, is that it's not, oh, I'm going to need an interweave. No, the modifications could be as diverse as the populations that we work with. Yeah, and to give some like general categories of modifications in case anyone's like, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, what, <laughs> what could that, that possibly be? Like, yeah. It can be going back into preparation and really uniquely and creatively uh, preparing and offering resources for that client. It might be around changing your sequence of targets, selecting a lower impact target or uh, a, a different memory network or kind of changing that process in some way. I mean, uh, Melissa, you mentioned interweaves, determining interweaves that could be brought in and utilized either content interweaves or process interweaves. Um, and then even to me, the most important one is really leaning into the therapeutic relationship. When modifications need to be made, how do we really lean into that and start to build security, safety, attunement, the degree to the degree that is needed for the type of material that we're working on and that is needed based on their own attachment experiences. And that will look so different from client to client. I have some clients that like me, like coming to me, but literally really don't care that much that I think they're important and that I care about them. They have humans in their life that give them that message. And then I have others that like wait for that hour every week to feel that I care about them. And it is so important to them and their work. And so that is, you know, uniquely, uniquely shows up for each client. I think the other modification in that realm of target selection and sequencing is letting ourselves imagine how we could target distressing material through a different door than an explicit memory. Um, it's just not always essential or even possible to get an explicit memory that's going to be a great representative of, of what we're trying to change. Um, you know, for instance, there's a, a lot of conversation around like, can you do EMDR with DID? Can you do EMDR with heavy dissociation? And my answer to that is absolutely. Do you know how to target things that aren't there in explicit story form? <laughs> do you know how to target uh, sensation and dreams and fragments of uh, flashbacks when the client doesn't even know if they're real or not, right? Do you, do you feel comfortable navigating the murky waters of targets that don't look like the usual targets and if we know how to do that, we can work with all kinds of stuff. But that's one of the big modifications that we make when there's something funky happening within the memory networks themselves and we can't get explicit memory in the same way. Um, I mean, honestly, I have a preference for that kind of symbolic targeting. Like I will almost choose to do it if I uh, have an option because I actually find it tremendously beneficial at certain stages in treatment. And one of the spots that I use it is between what we would call traditional um, preparation and resourcing and traditional phase three and phase four of explicit memory. I like to go through a phase of kind of symbolic processing because I feel like we learn a lot, um, but that's a modification and I have my reasons for doing it and I don't do it with every client and I do it with a lot. It also feels good to my body <laughs> and I, get, I think that gets to count. Um, and so I, I think like in that realm of targeting things, like broadening our definition and understanding of what gets to count as a target is one of the big modification zones. 
curious, can you guys think of like, what are your most common modifications? I really want to say mods because I have a weird gaming history. This <laughs> race keeps coming over my head. So now that I said it, I won't have to say it again, but just, just so everyone can join me if that's happening in your head, if you're a gamer out there. <laughs> I think my mine is reprocessing trauma through resourcing. So letting resourcing be the door into the trauma network. Um, And that's a whole long explanation. And I'm sure we'll get to a point of explaining in some ways of how to do that. But we can either select the memory we're working on and really go straight at it and very direct targeted processing, open that memory network directly, or we can start in through an avenue of resourcing um, and allow that to kind of come alive. An example of this could even be like some ego state work, like building um, and the developmental needs meeting strategies of identifying the parts that have a need that wasn't met and resourcing it to get that need met. Um, We may not start in identifying the trauma memories where their needs weren't met, but we're working on having that part get its needs met. So that is probably my most common modification. I think it's hard to even label it. Um, But for me, it's the patience given to the relational unfolding of this process knowing that, you know, those things that you listed, Jen, from the textbook um, about ability to experience high levels of vulnerability, lack of control, physical sensation, et cetera, that all of that is potentially unique in the client's experience in the presence of another person. And so for me, what I just ground as the anchor for the work that we're going to do is that this is going to take time to deepen and unfold and we'll get better at connecting. We'll get better at making meaning together of what we're doing in session. And that I don't expect you to just come in and spill your guts all over the place and just be fine with whatever I'm going to do and say, because ultimately I'm not here to fix you. We're here to experience something together and find a more authentic expression of yourself in in time as it is now, having lived through what you have, using and discovering post-traumatic growth and that resourcing that can create resilience and grit and all of these things that we want to see in our clients that that's discovered relationally. Um, I use, very similar to you, Jen, a very thorough and consistent resourcing process. Um, That's for me, how I get into targets and work in targets and get out of targets. It's resourcing all the time. Um, And then generalizing those resources out into the world. That for me, while it's not a modification that I make on the front end, it's definitely something I'm thinking about in the later stages of, um, I always want to be able to link, how can we make use of this today? How can we make use of this in what you're experiencing now and what you might be wanting to do moving forward, not just looking backwards.
I feel like we could talk about different modifications for a very long time. Yeah, because there is no <laughs> amount of paper that can hold like all no. the modifications. No, no. spreadsheet cells. Would, you know, we could talk for an hour about each one of what we've said and, you know, give examples and details of how that looks. But I, I think my hope is that people feel um, maybe set free a little bit to be with their clients differently in how this unfolds and um, more collaborative and creative in those encounters of what gets to count as EMDR um, yeah. and really broadening definitions and um, ways of doing this so that uh, we're not so attached to what a manual is telling us to do and we can be really present to what is um you know, what are we trying to do? And then what is the way that we could accomplish this together as two humans in this moment? Mm -hmm. uh, and if we have a script that could be helpful for that, please use it. They're great. But if we don't, could we make it up? Right. Could we, um, you know, create together on the fly and uh, know how to do that with confidence and with full permission that that is good therapy, that we have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, and I'm just looking through what I've written to the, in the margins of the textbook, but there's several of these domains that, um, the book goes through like on page 90 and 91 neurological mm -hmm. impairment, epilepsy, eye problems, drug and alcohol abuse, the posture in which you interpret this, these categories and what's written there is really important to me. I get a question a lot of, um, you know, within a TBI, for example, like can you do EMDR with a, you know, with a person who has a TBI or who has um, a neurological disorder, some limitation that they see and have detected through their assessment up front that right. they're seeing as this could be a big problem for us doing EMDR. And for me, I talk about three components that it doesn't matter what you put into this, the scene. I'm looking for these three components. Do they have ability to detect sensation internally and externally? That's number one. And what does that look like for them? Mm -hmm. Number two is how do they regulate their affect? So when they get hyper aroused, what does that look like? When they get hypo aroused, what does that look like? Is there any fluidity in there? And then the third is access to internal processing. That could be memory. That could be feeling. I know what I'm feeling, et cetera. Um, but if those three things, if we can be patient in our assessment of those three things. It doesn't matter what impairment, um, injury, uh, addiction, whatever, we're going to learn how to modify and, um, you know, augment our, our process to suit the client because of where they're showing up on those three things. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just me personally of what I'm looking for. I also think there's a common sense element to this, right? So like, I, I would like to identify this as collaborative common sense. <laughs> so if there's like some sort of medical thing going on and you're wondering, can we do EMDR with this medical thing going on, right? The common sense, the collaborative common sense is ask the client how they feel, right, about uh, trying EMDR given this consideration. And then common sense is get clearance from a doctor. <laughs> if this, you know, if this thing is under the purview of a medical professional in any way, like it's just safer to check. Can we do it with pregnancy? 
uh, does the client feel safe to? Do I feel safe to? And does their doctor say yes? That's common sense. If everybody says yes, then yes, right? If anybody says no, then no. That, and I think um, we can keep this simpler for ourselves. Same thing with a TBI. Do they want to try? Do I want to try? And does the doctor say yes? Um, and there's some things that are not medical and uh, common sense is not a yes or no. It's, well, let's try and see, right? Take a let's practical- feel it out. Yeah, yeah, feel it out. We'll 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 toe dip in. We'll try a little processing, see how you feel, and then we'll decide together, right? So this rigid binary as if there's like an EMDR god in the sky that's judging us and determining if we're doing it right. And you know, get that out of the room and be collaborative with your client and run experiments and get your own data on whether or not this is going to work for them. Yeah. 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 There's so much nuance because uh, I'm thinking of a client that. Um, or a consultee that was working with a client of theirs who had a um, uh, heart arrhythmia and was really concerned and had the doctor was very concerned that they can't do any physical exertion because it could throw their, their heart rate into an irregularity. And the doctor had reservations about them going to therapy because it could be potentially distressing. And the, the consultee was like, well, that puts them in in an impossible scenario where they don't have any way of seeking help at all. Like, you know, the right, the, right. the, like the standards. Yeah. Yeah. The standards that were put there were were so limiting. But in again, that careful feel it out assessment, we were able to learn like what's really going on and what are we going to do if anything starts to happen? Like how are we going to know? Similar to like the yeah. raise your hand, let's stop EMDR. Like with the client's consent and we both feel good and attuned to one another, of we know how it's going to go when we start this whole thing. That's what to me, I'm, I'm really looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think with, you know, with all of those considerations in mind, like what we really want everybody to kind of take away from this is um, this is a relational unfolding, right? We're meant to be creative and adaptive. The basic protocol is meant to be the sturdy skeleton that we rely on, but not that we feel devoted to and nothing else, right? And that in order to be a good EMDR clinician, we do have to use our own creative skill, mm -hmm. right? There is no exhaustive interweave list that is going to give you everything you need um, to, to adapt to all the different uh, situations with your clients. So give yourself permission and even beyond that make it an imperative that you are including your own creativity in the room and be collaborative with your client to figure out what's going to work for them and it is okay to try and have it not work like nothing went wrong if you try an interweave and it flops or if you try a resource and it's kind of meh right like you didn't hurt the client by giving them a container that they're never going to use again you learned something right you and your, and your client learn that that's not their jam, which means don't rely on that. If it didn't click for them, move on to something else. Keep developing resources until you find something that really feels resonant and personal and powerful. And all of that, that process is incredibly potent for their healing overall. We're not rushing to phase four, but neither are we afraid of it just because the, there's potential risks and implications to consider. Yes. How's that feel for a, a rousing summary of the conversation? A rousing summary and <laughs> go and do EMDR. <laughs> oh, right. oh, my preachy side occasionally comes out. I hope everybody's okay It was good. Okay I felt encouraged. It. I felt um, <laughs> uplifted. Yeah. I feel uplifted I will and not empowered. Give an 
<laughs> good. <laughs> yes. Oh. Um, as always, like stay in tune with the website. Our course calendar is going to have all kinds of ways to stay involved. Um, we've got uh, several free things coming up as well um, with our SI, like what is SIP? Um, I don't have the dates in front of me for what that is. Does one of you have uh, that? That's October 5th. October 5th. Mm-hmm. Do you have yeah, the time? So Jen and I, it's 1.30 to 2.30 Central Time on okay. Zoom. Um, and you can find that on the website, but also if you're part of the Beyond Healing community, that will be listed there. Yep. It's just a space to come and hear Melissa and I say all the things of what is SIP, how does case conceptualization influence your practice, um, and then you guys get to ask questions about it to see if it's something that you feel like you'd be interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can come to that free event and you know we'll help you determine if the full training feels like the right next step for you. Um, and uh, you guys have another one coming up for those that have already taken one. And you're dabbling in the idea of um, doing some of our advanced trainings. Um, there's an option on the website for that as well. You'll be getting an email about it, so that's coming. Yes. And then if you guys are feeling, you know, tantalized about uh, learning the <laughs> how to break the rules like an artist, Beyond's but, approach to EMDR, like <laughs> that's right, that's right. Our you know continual options for for that um, our EMDR certification. All three of us offer cohorts for that consistently. Um, so you can get on our website and look at continuing education, and we have um, each of our dates listed uh, for the rest of the year, so you'll be able to see those and into 24, too, so you can start planning your calendar for next year. And for those of you that are already certified and you're wondering about next steps and how to continue your learning, um, another great option is to become a consultant. Doing consultation work is a great way to diversify. You don't have to want to be a trainer. You don't have to want to even do certification um, there's lots of different reasons why being a consultant uh, can add to your work in a really yeah, wonderful and way. And grow you as a clinician and yeah, the learning person, just in general. Like, you know, you get access to so many different cases and uh, being able to walk with people through the EMDR certification process. Um, yeah, cool. amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we we run those cohorts consistently. Um, If you're interested in those, you can send us an email through the website, or if you're on the community, you can send me or Jen or Bridger uh, an email through there, and we'll let you know about what's coming up. We would love to have you in any or all of those. That's right. All right, guys. Thanks for being with us today. Take care. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.